Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy, folks. This is Jackson Monroe Laird here. My dad said I could introduce the show today. In this episode, my dad's old friend and bluegrass buddy dropped in and they talked and talked and talked and talked. Dad's friend is Mr. Bob Putnam, and he is an artist, a sculptor, a bluegrass guitarist, and a singer. The two of them were in the kitchen and recorded this interview while I sat in the living room watching Ernest Goes to Camp with headphones. My dad and I just love Ernest movies. But I have promised not to laugh out loud. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview where Mr. Putnam compares and contrasts the world of visual arts with the world of bluegrass. Enjoy the show. So I'm sitting here right now in my kitchen in America's Georgia with my old friend, Bob Putnam. And Bob and I go way, way on back. I We were just talking about it, and I think we met probably around 1984, five, six, somewhere in that time period. We were knocking around in the same, we had some mutual friends, let's put it that way. That's right. And eventually, I, I got to know Bob a lot better, and... Over the years, I, I've played a few gigs with you, Bob, as a, as a fill-in mandolin player. That's right. With the old faculty grass and um, just a, a multitude of various jam sessions and pickup bands and things. But to get this thing started, let's, um, or I'll ask you, how about just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us how you got started playing bluegrass and, you know, we're going to talk in this episode about the, uh, the similarities between art and music because you are an artist, an art teacher, and a musician. So I, I, I talk a lot about in some other episodes about how you can gain a lot by, uh, you know, you can learn from things outside of the circle that you're interested in. I'm getting way off track here, but we're going to talk about art and music, and you are truly an expert in both. But before we dive into that, tell us a little bit about how you first got started playing music and ultimately bluegrass. Okay. Uh, Well, it's very interesting. Um, uh, My first feelings for music uh, occurred one afternoon when my father, uh, who was building our house, Stopped his work for the day and sat down on the front porch and uh, or the front stoop of the house and uh, pulled out a harmonica and played the harmonica. I never knew he could play the harmonica. And he played uh, Will the Saints Come Marching In, and I just could not believe it. My eyes just about popped out of my head to see my father playing that music just from his heart and his head. Hmm. And he only did that a couple of times, but it left a, such an impression on me that uh, it made me want to play music. And of course, you know, you joined the band just like you did and I did and stayed with, the, you know, the, the high school band all the way through uh, graduation. And trading in my clarinet for a guitar. I did a very similar thing. I think I mentioned it in one of the podcasts about I played the French horn and I, as I was coming out of high school, I realized... I'll never be able to play this with anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. And I I wanted to get rid of it and get a banjo. So right. that right. did the same thing with a bass player. Well, and right, yeah. My mom bought my daddy a, a, a silver tone guitar from Sears. 
And uh, it was his idea that maybe he'd like to try to expand his musical uh, skills. But a guitar is a tough instrument. So it hung there on the wall, and uh, I would look at it, you know, as a young person. And finally, I started getting it down with the same old rusty strings. And yeah. then a friend of mine got a music book, and next thing you know, we're starting to you know, at least strum a little bit. <laughs> but uh, you, you talk about 1984 when we met. That's the year that uh, I graduated from... Uh, from Georgia State University with a visual arts degree, okay? So art was big on my mind. My art came to me through my grandmother, who um, was a painter, just an amateur painter. So I guess my point here would be that uh, you, people plant seeds in you. This is what a teacher yeah. does. Yeah. And my daddy planted that little seed by doing that little performance for me, and my grandmother would teach me a few things. And it just, uh, the arts attracted me. But the visual arts were stronger at that time. So I went to school after deciding that the best way to pursue that was to be a, an art teacher because I didn't want to be a starving artist. I had a family, and I you know, had to provide for them. So in 84, I graduated, and I got my first teaching gig, and, and there goes that journey. But I have to say that uh, I, I usually did not come home and do art-type art things other than preparation for class. Yeah. You know, pre preparation for materials and such. But I would pick up my guitar and I would strum it, play it, whatever, because it was a it was a spontaneous uh, exercise that you didn't have to think about too much. You just enjoyed the whole process. Yeah. So I kind of built on that. And as far as the bluegrass part, um, you know, I went through folk music and John Prine and listened to these guys, Jim Croce and. Those kind of musicians. And then, uh, of course, I heard Jimmy Atkins' uh, banjo <laughs> playing through the woods in the evenings because they, they, that's where they, the band started was in the house, my grandpa's old house. Yeah, and he, now he is talking about through the, the woods over there. The band Cedar Hill that I right. ended up playing with for 27 years. And I had a similar experience, you know, in discovering those guys and yeah. just really being blown away by how good they were. They accelerated into their music so fast. Yeah. They really did. And it was, it was, <clears throat> it was an, you know, an honor and a huge challenge for me to end up being selected to be in their band because right. they were way over my head and I had a lot of catching up to do real fast. Oh, they but they were. lived in the woods. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of guys did. Yeah, Bob and Fred McIsaac did. Back behind right. where you're, Parents. Yeah. Now, this is in Jonesboro, Georgia. Yeah, right, right. It was a house my grandpa built a long time ago. And they were a couple of hippies. Um, were. <laughs> in fact, I when I got out of forestry school in 81, I went to work for the Clayton County Water Authority as as their one and only forestry guy. I remember you speaking and about that. And that property butted up against yes, your, your, your place and yeah. where they lived right. and there was a little pond down there and it's it was pond. on the maps that i work worked with on this four thousand acre uh tract that little pond by where those guys in cedar hill lived was marked on the map as hippie lake right because they were they were flaming hippies <laughs> were. and they lived down right there. back or lived over there yes it's true i think the water authority you know That's came by and, and paid them a little bit if they would please move <laughs> Because yeah. they, they moved everybody off that property. Yeah, they did, except for my mother's house. But but those were good days, and that's when I first started developing an attraction to bluegrass music. But I have to give uh, Ed Davis, uh, who is 
he played with lots of folks, played with Buddy Ashmore in the Pony Express band way back in the day. And he was the department chairperson at uh, Adamson Middle School where I taught. And I did a little uh, couple of songs for an assembly because I, I had it in me to want to perform, you know, to get over your stage fright and get out there and perform. And after I sang before the student body, he came down to my room and says, hey, that was pretty good. Why don't you uh, come down to the band room um, on whatever day and let's some, play some music? So I said, okay. And he, of course, he's a banjo player, and he invited uh, Paul Murdoch, uh, who had never played the bass but was wanting to learn. And we put together the first trio for Faculty Grass, Bluegrass Band. Right. And we learned our first song. It, I, and I, Faculty Grass is the band that I played mandolin with you guys. Oh, yeah. Periodically. You did have another guy who was a teacher. Yeah, that was that Scott played. Bennett. Yeah. Scott Bennett. Yeah, yeah, he was there for a while. But we really didn't have a good solid uh, solo artist you would call, you know, on the mandolin or fiddle. You know, of course, you know, guitar and banjo can play their leads and such, but uh, having that extra instrument was what we always longed for. You guys had some good gigs, though, because um, your wife, if I'm not mistaken, was a legal, a paralegal or a legal secretary. secretary. And so she would get you guys, you guys had all these gigs playing for these lawyers. We did. And uh, that's the gigs that yeah. I recall. And they pay pretty you. well, too. So it was yeah, all, they did. It's always good if you can make a little money, you know, uh, so that you can do other things. But, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed those days, and it was a long process. I remember Bob McIsaac uh, at one of those Fifth Street Bluegrass festivals looked over there at me playing in the background. You know how the circle thing works yeah. with bluegrass. And he said, here, take this. And he handed me a pick. He said, stop using your thumb and learn to use this. <laughs> it, it was, so it was probably, I appreciate him for that. Oh, my goodness. It wouldn't surprise me if that was a tortoiseshell pick. No, it was just a little, little nylon. But uh, it's been a long journey, though, uh, learning to play um, bluegrass music for me. Uh, it's a lifelong project. You know, you develop these lifelong projects that you know are not going to go away such as playing golf. You know, I've started when I was about 12 and I'm just now starting to understand a little more about it where I can have some consistency. And you never, Same thing you never complete the project. No, no. Uh-uh. That's not the point. You don't win the game. You don't right. win the bluegrass game. Right. You, you just learn. And I continue to learn and I continue to practice. And like I said, when I got home from school, I did not um, get out some paint and brushes. I would pick up the guitar and and play and add the more you know it's exponential the more you the more you know the more you want to know the more you realize you don't know things yeah but i think this is probably a good time to go into the crossover uh into how uh the musical arts are so much like the visual arts i remember when uh every year would come around and i would develop a new theme for the year because you have to understand that teaching visual arts it's like being self-employed it's not like you're part of the English team or the history team or the science team. You are the, the teacher in the school. Yeah. And so you can design your curriculum however you want according to what the state lays in. But it's pretty broad. It's pretty wide open. So I would come up with an idea of how I want to approach that. And in one year it occurred to me after thinking about all that there is in the visual arts that it really comes down to the duality of life. There's a duality. That's the way things were created. You know, you got your man, you got your woman, you have your black, your white, your, your go, your stay, your yes, your no. Even the computer is open circuit, closed circuit. So there's a duality there. And it's going to take a little jump. If you could jump back in time, in the visual arts, you understood that the, the Greek people perfected their sculpture 
in their painting to the point where, especially their sculpture, so that it was mathematically perfect. It imitated life perfectly, you know. And and after you achieve that perfection, where do you go? Do you just keep doing that type of perfection? And as the centuries rolled by, and you went through the Renaissance period with painting achieving such a high level and all forms of art, and music is involved with that too. It takes you up to like to the year around 1800 when Napoleon was doing his thing, and, and France was the center of the art world, and you had artists like uh, Jacques Louis David or Augustus Engers painting, and when you see their work and you realize that you cannot be any more perfect than what they did then where is there to go? Are you going to continue to do it? So are you saying it, it all went downhill from there to Dolly and well, Picasso? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't call it downhill. And but, uh, is that also happening in music, perhaps? No, no, there, yeah, there's... there's. I don't mean to sidetrack you. But no, no, just, but think about it. If you, were, if you were an artist coming around studying your trade or craft or whatever you want to call it, around 1800 and you saw these artists that had achieved such a high level on such a massive scale, do, or do you really want to compete with that? Do you want well, to just keep trying to do it? That's the exact feeling I had after I'd been playing for 25, maybe 30 years, and seeing Chris Thiele perform solo, uh, sitting in a chair on a stage. At, Understood. At, you know you've, you've right. seen it all. Well, I think about things visually, and I think about that particular concept as a line running through space. And you, as an individual, are on that line. In the musical field, you're, or an artist, you're on that line. And you know what? There's always going to be some people that are far ahead of you in what they're able to do. And you're going to be far ahead of many behind you. So you shouldn't stress about it. You should simply be glad that you're on the line. Yeah, and another thing I've consoled myself with, too, is it's there are multiple lines. Mm -hmm. you, you may be on a slightly different tangent. That's right. And... It's okay. That's exactly you know, right. That's, ex that's exactly right. But I guess back to my point was in the visual arts, where was there to go? So people started jumping off of the reality imitationalism bandwagon and started saying there has to be more. And hence, Impressionism, early Impressionism, yeah. Impressionism came, came along. And then all of the things that transpired in the 20th century, your, you know, Picasso just broke the mold. He was incredible. You know, invented him and George Brock invented cubism and started fracturing life. But yet there was a reality in that that was just as pure as the ones who copied life perfectly, you know? It was almost like getting down to some inner essence. Yeah, right. More representative. Right. Uh, but, but getting back to the point of the duality of life, I think that that was the natural search for the right hand side, the left, excuse me, the left hand side of the equation. The right was established back when the Greeks achieved such perfection as they did. You sound like a guy who's obviously read Drawing on the Right Side of oh, the yeah. Brain. Yeah, that's yeah. a long time ago for sure. <laughs> yeah. But, but the man who, who actually, all these artists touched on it. Picasso touched on it. Salvador Dali touched on it. But uh, an artist, a little simple man from uh, New York City, who studied uh, with uh, Thomas Hart Benton in Missouri, actually broke the chains of perfect reality. His name was Jackson Pollock when he uh, realized that you don't have to have uh, a perfect subject matter in what you do. You can simply have an emotion or a feeling. 
in, in the way that you do things. And Picasso said there's no such thing as pure abstraction, and I believe it because all art comes from some emotion, which is a concrete thing, or some thought. But he broke the bonds with his abstract paintings, and, of course, that's why uh, his painting, one of his paintings, uh, composition number seven or something, sold for $145 million because they realized that was the left-hand side of the equation. So after that, where's there to go? But move yourself back toward the middle, and, you know, that's what artists are doing today. All different types of mutations and abstractions in art. But that brings us to the point of improvisation in the visual arts. With the Impressionists, they started doing what, what I consider to be improvisation. It's funny you bring this up and hold that, hold, will, put a little bookmark right there. Right there. A few episodes back, I did a kind of a rambling rap about improvisation. And it came to my mind that as you learn the techniques of playing music, those techniques then give you the skills to then later improvise. And I, I said something like, you know, if you were an artist, it wouldn't hurt you to paint paint a copy of the Mona Lisa and, and another copy and another copy and another copy and another copy. And then eventually mm-hmm. make your own. That's and exactly that, right. That is exactly the point that I like to make too. And I, I came to that realization myself. Uh, the type of art I was studying at Georgia State University was called neo-expressionism. Because after you went through abstract expressionism in the middle 40s and the middle 50s, there was no place to go. So people started going back to specific subject matter, but they would start with that subject matter and then they would let it tell them where they wanted to go with it, which is what I learned how to do. But I was uh, always a bit, we talked about this earlier, about um, academic studies of music, learning your scales and your key signatures. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but I was a poor student of that back in the day. I didn't want to, I, I did it because they asked me to do it. But as far as memorizing it like you should or could, I didn't do it. Well, I think in the band program, and and it's probably true for most levels of commercial performing in any style, it's not about creation. It's about delivering what somebody else wants. That's correct. You know, Mm -hmm. if I were putting together a little pickup band to go play a bluegrass gig, I don't want a banjo player, you know, just inventing everything. I want to do where he could play... Right. You know, dear old Dixie. Play the melody. And, you know. That's right. And, and he's, and, and that is a, a bit of a quandary in bluegrass is it is so traditional. And you want to be faithful to that, mm-hmm. but still be able to express yourself within that, that box. It's, I, I've compared it sometimes to writing poetry, you know, this free form verse that right. nobody even rhymes in a poem. If you go to a poetry jam at a coffee shop or something you're not going to hear any rhymes right. pretty much right. Which compared is to classical, the old classical boxed ones. up like the form for a sonnet mm-hmm. where you have 10 syllables 14 lines of a rhyming pattern and people just threw all that out the window but bluegrass is kind of like those people that still write sonnets today yeah it's, you know, true. it's so traditional is there a space even within bluegrass to Without just changing it like David Grisman did and saying, well, I'm going to go over here and do this dog music thing, obviously rooted in bluegrass and jazz. and right. But within that little narrow, <clears throat> still being able to call it bluegrass, 
how much expressionism can you put into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of created a different line right there. He did. For me, um, in my personality and who I am, I kind of approached it in a backwards kind of format. I would, um, <clears throat> I was better with the expressive side of things. I, in, in the visual arts, I did my homework and I understood the mathematics of precision when it comes to painting things, imitationalism, the way things look in the real world. I did that. In music, I didn't do as well, you know. I was more of, I'll just take this melody and just play around the melody right. and not really nail it down. And there's a flaw in that. I've come to realize there's a flaw. You really should learn the melody. <laughs> but it's a, it's a double-edged sword because sometimes people who learn the melody can't jump off of that and go into the freeform um, expressionism type way of playing, improvisational way of playing, yeah. Yeah. without getting lost. They don't know how to do it. In fact, um, and, and they get a lot of outside pressure to play it the way it's supposed to be played. Supposed to be, you know? right? I mean, and so it's funny. It's, you should play it the way it's supposed to be. You should at least have the ability to do it. The ability. To, yeah. But I'll give you an example. Okay, so um, uh, you know Danny Burmel. Yeah. Danny Burmel's my friend. He plays music with us in the Eighth of January band, and he's played with the Faculty Grass. And he's just now finishing up his doctor degree, uh, doctor's degree at uh, University of Georgia in. Um, music education. He's that just man. He's a fiddle player. He's a fiddle player, but he knows he knows all the theories because he's just brilliant that way, and he can improvise just really well. And his professor, uh, Doctor Skip Taylor, uh, we those two put together workshops to try to go and change the attitude of other schools and professors and teachers that there is a place to play music without reading the notes, by memorizing it, and also moving into improvisation, because that has been neglected for probably the last 50 years or so. Read the notes, play the notes. When you get out of high school, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, I traded my clarinet for a guitar because I wanted to keep it going, but so many people let it go. And we would go to these conferences around America, Louisville and, and Salt Lake City and such, even in Ireland, and we would have a jam session that uses your basic one four five chord structure, you know, that you can hear the chord changes in this in this key, whatever. They couldn't do it. These professional teachers, musicians, could not do it without having notes to read because they never practiced it. Right. On the other side of the coin, those technicians who can translate printed music into sound and do it very well right. are useful for composers. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I wrote a symphony, I, I need somebody to play what I wrote. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, right. somebody like That's John Williams scoring, you it's, know, it's equally as important as anything for else. Star Wars, you need those technicians. Right. Although I'm afraid a lot of that may be replaced by computers mm-hmm. and probably already is yeah. certainly is in the video game industry and things. I mean, there is still a place for a working musician who is classically know, a, trained? A robot like a player piano, fed by the music and can deliver it yeah. accurately. Yeah. Well, I wish I could do that more. I um, do too. I do. Uh, I do. I play with Ed Davis, and that man can read the notes just like ringing a bell. He can hear the notes. He can sing it in his head. He's an amazing. Danny's the same way. Uh, I think David Ellis is a little bit like that too. You know, 
Yeah, he's really good like like that. So, you know, I go I go to the Church of Christ up in uh, Woodstock, Georgia, and they don't have any instrumental music, but they have the music on the screen. You know, the the words and the notes. <laughs> so, for me to to try to sing those notes has been a real challenge yeah. for me. I'm trying to catch up with that. But this has been a good year for me uh, as far as uh, sitting down because I've been playing for so long that, you know, and I play my scales and I know the scales. I know the scales all the way up and down the keyboard for the most part. So it becomes easier to find the melody within, uh, you know, the key signature that you're playing in. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hopeful. I'm not dead yet. My hands still work, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and we're still performing and it's pretty fun. Well, um, you're also a singer. We've talked a lot about you know guitar yeah. and you know the instruments, but you're a singer too. And one of the things I've I've always admired about your singing is that, and I think I can say I see this in the art projects and sculptures and things that I've personally seen or seen photographs of. But really, it comes out in your singing. Is that when when I see you sing. You pour your entire self into it. I mean, the veins on your neck are popping out, mm-hmm. and you are, if you can go over 100%, you're over it. I mean, you truly, it's so obvious that you love doing it. Oh, it's painful And you times. put everything in it, and it's so much more fun to play with people like you who really go all out and all the way in. And a lot of people are just going through the motions, and it's just a drag. Well, I, I have, thank you for that. Um, I have conversations with Ed Davis. We're, we're very close. And if you don't know Ed, he's an amazing human being. Um, and, and what he said the other day after the performance, we had a performance, and I felt like I, I played pretty well and sang pretty well. He said, um, when you sing, you have to make sure the notes are where they're supposed to be. Your muscles, your armature, whatever you want to call it, all the, the muscles in your body and your strength and your diaphragm, all that, you have to push the note to, to the tone quality that you're looking for, to the volume that you're looking for. You have to think about how you want to deliver and the inflections in the phrase that you're singing. All those things are important. Whereas on the instrument, you push down on the third fret on a guitar and at the top and you get a G note. So you, you are responsible for the notes that come out, but it has never been easy for me. Singing has not been easy. I I was, I don't think I was born with a naturally wonderful (laughs) singing voice. So maybe my contortions are just me trying to hit the proper notes. (laughs) Well, maybe what I see visually is you try, really try. A lot of people frankly don't put, enough effort into their play. I mean, I used to tell this little, this is getting a little bit away from this, but every band, every bluegrass band at one time or another plays old home place. Right. Everybody knows it. It comes up at every jam session. It's a very common tune. It's a good tune. And one time Pony Express was rehearsing it or going through it. And we got done with it. and, And I said, is is anybody here even thinking about what this song is even about? I mean, and I everybody just kind of stopped. I don't think anybody was thinking about it. We were mm-hmm. going through it. You can sing the words to a song and not even comprehend true. what you're singing about. And I said, just so true. So think true. about the words. 
this song, Old Home Place, <clears throat> it, it it sounds you know pretty cheerful, but it's a pretty uh, depressing. It is theme. Uh-huh. So, boys, as we sing it again, how about really think about those words and try to feel those emotions? It's true. And you know, it's it's bluegrass is a strange thing because it's really a a depressing, uh, bluesy kind of themes, but it, all wrapped up in a really nice, happy-sounding package. Yeah. Well, I think that the thing about bluegrass or any of the arts is it deals with human emotion. That's why I chose this field uh, of arts for my entire life. And that's what I was really getting at when when I watch you sing. You are pouring emotion into it. Well, And great singers... Sometimes, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about people like Jerry Garcia or... Or Vince Gill. Count, no, not Vince Gill. Not, you know, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, there are people with not great singing Oh, skills, I get it, I get it. But pour the emotion in. Johnny Cash. Right, absolutely. He ain't no great singer. You're right. But I, I he has got all the emotion and more. Mm-hmm. But a lot of other people on the other end of that bell curve have no emotion. And mm-hmm. tremendous, tremendous skills and mm-hmm. abilities. And, and there's all kind of, everybody's all along that scale. But I think we could all communicate better musically and in any other activity we do if we would think more emotionally and less technically. Well, I, I think that kind of brings us to another point, that being uh, stage performances. You know, it's one thing to to play with your pals, you know, and, and, and enjoy your abilities and the things that you've learned, your articulation on your instrument, to be able to play and to deliver a song. But when you're trying to sell a song to the audience, well, think about Buddy Ashmore, how he can sell a song. Oh, yeah. Because he's right in the pocket. He, he's believing it. For me, um, when we're going to do a song, there's no problem communicating with the audience because you're fixing to sell them an idea about a certain thing that happens in life. And I try to pick songs that have some universal quality. And that's the same thing as uh, the visual arts, too. If you're going to paint a picture, isn't it nice if you can paint something that other people can buy into? That They, they say, I get what this artist is saying because I have my own response yeah. to it. You know, I can relate to it. So when you're in front of a stage, uh, on a stage in front of an audience, and you're fixing to sing the old home place, what's the harm in asking the people if they can think about their own home place for a minute? You know, and sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. Maybe a person doesn't even have an old home place. But that helps a person on a stage to connect with the audience. We do a song called uh, Everybody's Reaching Out for Someone. The Cox family did it, and Alison Krauss sang with them. It's a great song yeah. about finding your soulmate in the world. Well, I met my soulmate in the second grade, and I drew her name out of a hat. And there's this little blonde-headed girl, and I'm looking at her from across the room because I didn't know girls, didn't know anything about them much. But the first present I ever bought was for her, and it was a big deal. So whenever we do that song, I think about her, and, and I relate with the audience about, you know, do you have your soulmate? You know, think about them or hold their hand or whatever. Anyway, all of that being said, it makes for a unified, commanding stage performance where everybody leaves feeling like, like they gained something from it. Yeah, that's, that is so true. Good performances require that little setup 
or they're enhanced by a good MC yeah. job. But you know where they, you can pull the audience in. Some songs I wrote a song one time called Harvey Johnson. I remember that. And song. if I didn't introduce it, no one would know what that song right. is about. It's, it, but if I will just tell you beforehand what to visualize as we sing it, then right. you're like, oh man, that makes perfect yeah. sense. There's that word visualization. You yeah. know, it's a very important word. Yeah, that's true. It wouldn't come across on an album without that little little setup, and that probably mm. means that's a fault in the song uh, because it requires that. But if I plastered a certain picture on the album cover, then mm. people would get it as because it's it's kind of cryptic in the way I wrote it, mm. uh, as yeah. a lot of songs are. Well, I think that um, I think you got to throw in the element of love to all of this because you wouldn't play music if there wasn't a love that you have for that form of expression and the desire to share that expression with other people. And, and I think it just makes the world a better place when you put your heart and your soul into it on that level right there. It also creates an atmosphere of forgiveness because it does. Because when you when you when you mess up, yeah, they people don't, don't care. They still love you. Yeah, that's that is such a good point because I've I've had performances where I feel like I didn't have my A voice or whatever. I may have croup, you know, allergies, that kind of stuff pops up. But when you finish the performance, if you've put everything you have into it, and they know that you were being as honest as you could, you could, then they consider it a successful performance. Yeah. 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 It's, it's good stuff. Um, I, I made a list here of, um, just to turn the corner a little bit, about um, the things that I learned that were being taught to me, and they're still, still very real to artists today, about the things that govern a work of art. And they're called the elements and the principles of design. And, of course, when I was in, in school, in college, learning about these things, you know, they, um, there's only like 14 of them. There's not many. You know, seven elements and, and six or seven principles, depending on how they group them together. They teach us these things, but it, it really has taken me, it took me many years to really start to truly understand all the depth and the... Uh, idiosyncrasies of each one of those little things. Take, for instance, uh, the most basic element of design for an artist is a line. And it's defined as a point, a point moving through space. A point moving through space. Well, isn't that exactly what a music note is on the bar staff? A point moving through space? So it's the same thing. And, of course, you have other ones like uh, color. Take, for instance, color. Color comes from light. It comes to us in a wave. It does not music come to you in a wave, too. Now, I did a sculpture project based upon the correlation between uh, music and color. And no one has ever really been able to bind the two together mathematically, physically, through physics or whatever it may be. They're two separate entities, yeah. you know, sound waves versus light waves. <clears throat> but in music... You know, I'm not a music theorist type person. I'm not really smart with that kind of stuff. But uh, isn't, Ed Davis taught me this, <laughs> that a chord is just three notes, right? The tri- It's called a triad, right? right? You know that. Right. Well, think about color. Color is just, uh, the print, The primary color is just three colors. Right. There are only three. Threes. Three so, guns in a, in a cathode ray tube. Right. RGB. Right. right. So there is a common thread that runs through all of things. 
you know, and, and between music and, and art, absolutely the same thing. Um, value is one of the elements of design. Uh, or elements, yeah, elements of design, um, yes. Value is lightness and darkness, okay? As simple as that, like a black and white TV. But in music, wouldn't that be sound, absence of sound and much sound, you know, the two together? Mm-hmm. That's a thought. I'm not saying it's yeah, exactly the same thing, but I was trying to think of the correlation between the two. Um, space is one of the things that we talk about in art, and you have space that has something in it, space that has nothing in it. That's positive, negative space. That makes up all the space that there is. In music, you either have the sound, the note, or you have the rest. Yeah. So it's a, it's a duality right there. And, and do you ever run across musicians who, who do not play enough silence? <laughs> What a concept. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I do it myself a lot of times at jam sessions. It's real easy, especially as I've been taking up the dobro and I foist myself into various bluegrass situations and I would have played that thing, you know. So I, you know, I doodle around probably more, certainly more than I would if I were on stage or if we were recording, right. you know, I would be very timid. Yeah, very careful and I would when you came try in. to plan everything. But at a jam, it's real easy to over to play way too much, and yeah. it becomes a mess. There's just you're crowding out the space. That's right, and, and that's why I hope I hope that you will uh, invite uh, Ed to come down and do a session and talk about. We it. have already talked about this. I mostly want to pry into his uh, experience teaching because I've taught a lot of people how to play. Nothing on the, on the scale. The scale is huge. I mean, a typical band director, you think if you do that for 30 years, how many, we're talking in the multiple thousands of kids. Upwards of 40 now. He's retired several times. Who have been, couldn't play a note to playing some pretty amazing things as they graduate from high school. And he taught thousands and thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of people. And I want to get into that. Yeah. Uh, I, I went through it myself, so I understand it a little bit from the learner side. But mm-hmm. he's got he's an amazing guy. He, he and I are going to sidetrack here briefly. And I, I have already talked to him about doing mm-hmm. an interview. And I will. We will do that yeah. soon. Ed and I, back in 1982, decided we were going to build a mandolin. We're each going to build a mandolin. Mm-hmm. And I had Simonoff's book, and we both started. And he had access to the school wood shop. Mm-hmm. So we could go in there and use the bandsaw and stuff like that. And we, we started hacking away at building mandolins way back then. Ed, Ed is the kind of guy that will try. He wants to experience a lot of what's out there in life. But, but he knows his limits, too. He's an interesting guy. <laughs> I, was, I love Ed. We're going to get him on here. I was with him the last time we played golf together. He said, I'm not going to be good at this. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> He's funny. A lot of times, um, Ed will say to other people that um, I once took banjo lessons from Brad Laird. And, and he says it in the plural. I took banjo lessons. The mm-hmm. truth is, I gave him one lesson. Mm-hmm. One Lesson only. Mm-hmm. And he was already a banjo player, but he, I guess there was something I was doing he wanted to figure out. I showed him a little something, and that was it. We did one lesson. But he always says, yeah, I took lessons from Brad yeah. Lair. Well, Thanks, Ed. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I, I'm just real fortunate that, uh, you know, I made him made a friend with him back in the day. 
and we will be friends forever, just forever, just like you know you and I are. And I have to throw this in there too. Um, when you when you get with people who nurture you along, for instance, when when I first started knowing you, and you would you would be sitting here, and I'll be sitting here. You always gave me positive feedback or or you encourage me i was trying something new i knew i was stinking it up because i you know just didn't have the skills yet well it was the same way jimmy atkins is the same way yeah. they always say good job you know and you're moving forward you move forward with your skill level you know yeah yeah that and is... you did that for me you were always encouraging to me too and i appreciate that I just thought i'd throw that out i don't recall it i guess i do that with everybody no i'm just kidding but no i think you were drunk no i'm, just, no, I'm teasing i'm teasing there, that is very important because sure we all got where we are by other people doing what you just talked about, yeah. being encouraging, not discouraging. Right. But some, you know, you get around certain people and uh, if you can't cut it or you're annoying to them, I'm not saying that you have to be applauding everything. Yeah. You know, like if somebody's playing lousy, you don't need to necessarily encourage that, but... You, I, I guess it's an art form to relate to other people mm-hmm. and help them along without steering without them wrong crashing direction. them. You don't want to crash their right. boat. You want them to keep moving forward too. But some people just as soon crash and burn. You know, they don't mind cutting other people down yeah. and slicing and dicing. Well, them. I'll give you an example. Remember when we used to go up to um, Larry Bishop's place? Oh yeah, on the porch. And, and for four days, yes, and it, it is so hard to get rid of that that amateur idea that the louder you play, the better you sound. Yeah, you have to cast that idea away. That's not what it's about. And uh, I think you were up there, and and you made a comment that you had hope that everyone would extend that courtesy to you when you played your <laughs> when you played your breaks, and it stuck with me, and I remembered that forever. Getting back to our point, just like Ed Davis said to me one time, the spaces between the notes are just as important as the notes themselves. You know? That's a Isn't fact. that incredible? What an interesting thought, no doubt. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you another one. Okay. What about textures in music? Texture is a big deal for an artist. It's the surface quality of something, how it looks or how it feels, whatever it may be. Let's just say I'm playing rhythm guitar behind the lead players. I have seen artists or uh, you know guitar players that they've never changed the manner in which they strum the guitar. If they're playing rhythm, they might get softer or they might get louder, but they're still just doing their thing because it's easy to do your thing. Yeah, right. You know, to play a bar chord and do rhythm and change the texture that way is a wonderful thing. Because that's sometimes you have to do that because that gets you into the, the the principles of design are a little bit different. But but texture is one of your elements of design, and I think artists need to think about the texture of the music. And if a song's texture is the same thing all the way through, you need to think about what you can do to alter that texture for the sake of variety, which is one of the principles of design. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that I do know what you're saying. Yeah, that is something that I've. Well, Cedar Hill and Pony Express, we both consciously worked on that in terms of uh, devising a set, making that set Absolutely. list. You wanted to vary the 
the texture, the tone. Absolutely. You know, using those art terms, but you know, for us, it was the what key is it in? Right. What you know, what does it what does it feature? You know, mm-hmm. and mix them up. And it's very discouraging sometimes to be at a kind of a low caliber jam where where decisions are made like this. Well, let's do that one because I already have my capo on. You oh, know, so while true. we're in A, right. let's knock out all our A tunes, you know, and mm, true. And and that's fine just playing among yourselves. If it works. But for an audience, changing things up, yeah. contrast, well, going from this to that. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and let me just add this right here. The, the I think the number one principle of design, which is sometimes hard to wrap your mind around the whole thing, is unity and harmony in a work of art. Okay, when I say work of art, it could be a painting or a sculpture, it could be a musical performance, it could be an entire show, an entire series of, of pieces. You want unity and harmony in the whole thing, but in that, how do you get that harmony? And and you do that with uh, wash. Repetition, rhythm, variety, um, all kinds of things. Um, scale, change of proportion. Um, you know, uh, your mention of unity and harmony is so appropriate for bluegrass because obviously all the great bluegrass bands also have great harmonies. You, you're just not going to get called a great bluegrass band Unless you're singing those trios and That's really true. knocking them out, you That's know. True. And unity, I mean, it's a group effort. I talked about this in the baseball and bluegrass episode. I, I was comparing baseball and bluegrass mm-hmm. about how bluegrass really is a team sport. Yeah. So the, the the combined sound of the band coming out is a unified effort. We hope. Yeah. We don't want to sound like five individuals. Absolutely, sound like the thing, the mm-hmm. band. Yeah, and I think that's that's more. Um, it's more common these days to have band names that are just a name for the band, like the Eighth of January, yeah. Pony Express, mm-hmm. instead of the Jimmy Martin and the Sunny Mountain Boys model. Yeah. Which there you it was was not about necessarily the unity. It might have been about unity of sound, but it was, certainly wasn't about unity. Right. There was a hierarchy in the band, right? right. Mm-hmm. And that's come back a little bit. I mean, I you know you are seeing the resurgence of the so and so and the so and so Mountain Boys. Yeah, that's coming back a little bit, right? But you you're you're hitting the nail on the head, as I say, when you talk about yeah, unity. It's, it's really a very unselfish endeavor. And it's easy for your ego to become involved with your artistry, too. You have to be, uh, I think, on guard. Because and dangerous. Yeah. It's just... Yeah. You have to think about why you're doing what you do. But you, you know? have to have a certain amount of ego, or, or why would you even strive to accomplish anything? I mean, you have to... There's a cer- certain amount of self-serving, it is. In- self-interest in everything everybody does. Yeah, but it just needs to be balanced with also the giving. Yeah, it is. It is giving. I know that when I finish uh, a performance, I like to think to myself. I think to myself. Think to myself that uh, hopefully my reputation is still intact. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I didn't step into it too bad. You know that I did hit the right pitches on all the notes, and my lead at least made some sense. You know, that it worked with the piece. So, 
you you want to be included. You know, you, you it's a feel good factor. You want to be part of that. Um, that is the uh, you know the the nice thing about musical performance compared to art is that when you hang your picture in the gallery, you're not getting a round of applause. No, it's it's quieter. It's, it's very, a quieter thing. Very subtle. Someone might you know write you a. a a note and say right. I really enjoyed your painting. Well, yeah, but it's fun to hear people cheering instantly. It's true. The spontaneity of the thing is very different. Yeah. Also, with the painting, you can sit back and think about it for a while. You know, your your painting may take a year to finish. I don't know. Yeah, I think this is a lot like in the improv thoughts on improvisation episode. I talked about how when you play a solo, it's you're in the hot seat. You have to immediately compose. Right. Yes, you do. Instantaneously, if you're truly improvising. Or you could spend a year writing a really cool solo and, and practicing it, it right. working at home in your studio. Uh-huh. You know? Well, there, I think, when, as long as we went back to impro- improvisation for a second, there's a little bit of a duality going on there, too, all the time. Because you know if you're going to improvise, you still have to hold the melody to a certain extent in your head. So you have your mind, part of your mind has to be on how it's going to start, the ch- chord changes, and where it's going to end, the timing of it. Yeah. You know, So there's a little bit of a duality on that too. Bob, I know we could talk for probably four or five solid days. We could talk about I never reach <laughs> deep enough into this. Yeah. But I, I just want to thank you for coming all the way down here and doing this. Yeah. Um, I, I really, with this this whole podcast, I I want to try to get people to open their minds a little more and maybe not think that how you rank as a musician necessarily is how well you play Flint Hill Special or uh, you know you get what I'm saying. I do, and it's it's so much deeper than that. And you you bring that out very well, and I appreciate you coming yeah. here and sharing this with the audience. Well, I'm just one person trying to make my life count, you know, and to make a difference around me in a good, positive way. I you think know? if we would all try to do that, that things will work out for the best. Yeah, man. Pleasure. Glad to be with you, Brad. Thanks. Okay. Hi, everybody. This is Jackson again. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mr. Bob Putnam. He's a really nice man, and after they finished, we went to Pat's place and had a pizza for lunch. And they kept talking and talking and talking and talking. I guess they still thought they were on the podcast. Be sure to tell your friends about my dad's podcast. And also visit the show notes page for each episode. Just go to grasstalkradio.com. That's grasstalkradio.com, and click on any episode. There are lots of extra goodies on the show notes. Take care, and happy picking!